Hello, this is Peter Baxter, Editor of Developmental Medicine and Child Neurology. It's a great privilege to introduce this podcast. We're going to be discussing the paper by Stephen O'Flaherty and his colleagues entitled Adverse Events and Health Status Following Botulinum Toxin Type A Injections in Children with Cerebral Palsy, which is due to appear in the February 2011 issue. It's going to be discussed by Stephen O'Flaherty, who is head of the Kids Rehab at the Children's Hospital at Westmead, New South Wales, Australia, and Senior Specialist in Pediatric Rehabilitation, who is one of the authors, and Professor Kerr Graham, who is Professor of Orthopaedic Surgery at the Royal Children's Hospital, Melbourne, Australia. Can I please turn to you, please, Stephen, to discuss the background to the paper? Indeed, and thank you for the invitation to discuss our paper. Concern about possible systemic adverse events after botulinum toxin injections to manage children with cerebral palsy resulted in considerable discussion amongst peer groups from around Australia. About three years ago, I guess, the area of most concern was in the more severely affected children, especially those in GMSS levels 4 and 5. Some clinical groups from other services decided to restrict the use of botulinum toxin in these children and some decided to stop it altogether in those who were GMSS level 5. Our service agreed as a group to continue using botulinum toxin in all GMSS levels and the reasons for this are outlined in the paper but in brief this decision was based on at the time the US Food and Drug Administration's advice which was to continue usual practice. They subsequently modified that a little. The other factor relevant to our decision was that we were using botulinum toxin in GMSS levels 4 and 5 children who, as a peculiarity of our service, make up about 40% of our 1,300-odd children with cerebral palsy who we look after from a referral soon after first diagnosis until they leave high school. So it was a considerable part of our workload. We also felt that the treatment goals that we were really targeting with this treatment for these children, such as improving hygiene, uh, positioning, improving positioning, improving orthotic tolerance and dealing with pain, we felt that they were important enough goals to pursue this. And I guess lastly, and perhaps uh, at least as important as the other reasons, we felt that if we stopped or restricted this, that we would not be able to uh, potentially answer the question that was still, we felt, an open one of whether or not these were indeed systemic side effects or were they part of the morbidity that we know prevails in, uh, in these children. So in brief, the process was one of really formally keeping a record of health events at the time of the children being seen in one of our botulinum toxin clinics, that is for the previous month. We also kept the record of why children cancelled their appointment because we wanted to capture health-related reasons for the cancellation to make sure we did not miss that. And then after the children were injected, they were followed up one month later and an inquiry was made about what had happened in that month as far as any health events or specific uh, adverse events that had uh, occurred to that particular child. I will just point out one aspect that we used, which is perhaps a peculiarity, but was in fact suggested by Professor Graham, and that's that we labelled certain events sentinel events because we felt that they were kind of the key ones in this particular area of concern, and they were specifically lower respiratory tract issues, increased uh, or dysphagia, and generalised weakness, and of course death. So the paper really describes an audit of the adverse events in these children with cerebral palsy 
who were scheduled to be seen or actually managed with botulinum toxin uh, over a 16-month period from August 2008. Over the 16 months to December 2009, there were 717 episodes of care of children with cerebral palsy scheduled to have botulinum toxin. Of these, uh, 121 were cancelled and there were 596 injection courses were performed in 334 children. And just to clarify that, children received between one and three courses of injections over that 16-month period. Initial and follow-up information a month after the uh, injections was obtained in 100% of children either by face-to-face -face assessment or by telephone follow-up. And the data was grouped into GMSS uh, levels. And just to run through, in GMSS level one, made up 19% of the children, level two, 26%, level three, 13%, level four, 20%, and GMSS level five made up 22% of the children. Adverse events occurred in 23, just over 23% of injection episodes. And this 23% was made up of three major areas we felt. We felt that 8.9, almost 9% of the injection episodes were felt to be unrelated to botulinum toxin or the procedure. 4.7, just under 5%, were felt to be due to the procedure or the sedation that was used during the injection episode. And 9.6, almost 10% of the injection episodes, we felt could be attributed to botulinum toxin. Now, within this 9.6%, the sentinel events of lower respiratory tract issue, worsening dysphagia, and generalised weakness made up about a quarter of that at 2.2%. The remaining 7.4% were the adverse events of uh, excess localised weakness, bowel and bladder, sphincter problems, and a flu-like illness. And finally, all the uh, adverse events were temporary. There were no deaths in the month before uh, nor in the month after the injection episodes. And absolutely finally, when the incidence of the sentinel events in the month before the injections was compared to the month after, lower respiratory tract issues occurred in 3.6% before and 1.2% of episodes after injections, and worsening dysphagia was the same before as after. Uh, firstly, I thank you for the opportunity of taking part in the podcast. This is an important therapeutic area. The use of botulinum toxin is very popular in children with cerebral palsy, and it's really a very unique therapeutic, and it's unique in how the use has been developed in many parts of the world. So I do think this study is important. It adds new information, and I think many of the readers of the journal will be very interested in the findings. I guess the first issue I'd like to ask Dr. O'Flaherty to comment on is really in relation to previous work and publications, including a study of our own, which has also been published in Developmental Medicine, that what does Dr. O'Flaherty think this new study adds to the current literature? I think primarily it reassures us as clinicians. There is still some doubt I have to say in my mind, and I think in, in our collective minds as clinicians here, about what is actually happening with, when children become unwell after botulinum toxin injections. Is this due, in fact, to systemic spread, or is this due to the, if you like, the natural morbidity of, of particularly the more affected children? 
I think at this stage what we can say with this in that with the concerns that were raised that we would continue to use this medication on all GMSS levels on the basis of not finding that there is an increased incidence of the problems that we would associate with, for example, bulbar incompetence or bulbar effect and pharyngeal incompetence, if you're uh, incompetence with uh, airway um, problems in the study. It also adds, I think, weight to the general feeling that sphincter problems of bladder and bowel, either urgency or frank incontinence, we found occurred only in lower limb injections. And in fact, in 11 of the 12 children in whom it occurred over the 16-month period, it was in the upper part of the leg that the injections were administered. So we think that adds more weight to what is a localised effect. I have to tell you that we are none the clearer on what the exact um, process is involved in the localised effect. And I guess finally, I've mentioned the reassurance to the clinicians, but what we've been very careful to do with this is to relay it back to families who were, I think, quite distressed by media coverage uh, at the time of particularly the children's deaths after receiving botulinum toxin. And at this stage, I think that we can say that at least carrying out the, the, uh, the administrative uh, practices that we are following, that we believe that this medication uh, has a significant degree of safety. If I could just come back on those issues, and those are very important. I, in contrast to the larger study from Melbourne, which was published last year, where we found a relationship between GMFCS level, the more severely involved child had more adverse events, and a relationship to dose. I think this is a very important study because it shows that the basic issues of the study design really are very important. The Melbourne study was retrospective, and there seemed to be quite a strong correlation with dose and with GMFCS level, but we had no data on the background events. So I would compliment you most strongly on the design of the study because the real issue is, as you have clearly found, what is the level of health events in these children, particularly in your own catchment area, in your own community, and that will vary according to the referral base which you've already referred to. So this is really quite unique, and I think it shows how that a prospective study with a before and after data gathering can shed some very new and important light. However, it's almost a little bit uh, counterintuitive, and I wonder if you can explain as to why respiratory events might actually have decreased uh, post-injection and post-intervention. I think the short answer is that we don't know. We did raise the possibility of protection, and I have to tell you it was put there because if one is to implicate botulinum toxin in the process of what was a decreased incidence of lower respiratory tract issues, one also has to say that it definitely spreads systemically because we know that it, when injected to, uh, for example, salivary glands, it reduces the salivary production. And in children who are at risk of aspiration of uh, saliva, 
then that may be an explanation for this. But I think that that is a bit of a, a long bow as such, and I think that the essence is that we do not know. I will explain one thing, though, that perhaps doesn't come out to, as clearly as we would have liked in the paper, and that's that we use the abbreviation LRTI, which I know is commonly the I would usually stand for infections, but we wanted to include uh, the issues of, of obviously infection, but also aspiration and asthma, because we felt that was important in terms of trying to capture. Well, that's a very interesting idea, and I think that especially in the use of some of the other preparations, the type B toxin, which is known to have much greater diffusion characteristics and therefore a greater risk of adverse events, there is quite a high prevalence of reduced salivary production with remote limb injections. And so certainly the type B can reduce uh, the amount of saliva, and it may be that the type A does that to a lesser degree. But that does kind of consolidate the view, which is really well established in animal models, that remote effects do occur. The one thing that I also noted was that the Melbourne study found a relationship with total dose, and I don't think you commented as fully in your study. And so the issue, for example, of trying to understand the mechanism of incontinence is, I think, probably in practical terms, we know that this is not, a, it's a very concerning adverse event, but it's not ultimately, it's, it's self-limiting and it's not ultimately life-threatening. But it does point towards possible systemic actions. Now, we found that the relationship to incontinence did have some bearing to total dose. And might that not be the explanation in your study that the doses typically in the upper limb are much smaller? And therefore, did you look for a relationship with total dose administered and the incidence or prevalence of sphincter disturbance? Uh, we did, and we didn't find an association. The total dose didn't help us at all, if that's the right term. We looked at it also in relation to the appearance of the so-called sentinel events and, again, did not find an association either with that, either with dose, which was one aspect, or with the way that the children were sedated or, more specifically, anaesthetised. Our population, more than 95% of them received nurse-administered nitrous oxide for the sedation. We actually think that that is still a question that needs to be to be kept very much in mind, and that's what role sedation or anaesthesia has in the appearance of some of these adverse events. If I could just move on then to one other issue. Your study is a model of how to use botulinum toxin across all GMFCS levels in a specific unit with a specific referral practice by developing protocols, by monitoring and reporting on events, health events before and after injection. If other large volume units adopt this kind of best practice model, I think the use of toxin will be safer, both now and in the future, and that is really important. But there still is, I guess, in, in many ways, the elephant in the room, which is how did you and how did we and how does everyone else establish appropriate dose regimens in the use of botulinum toxin. Could you comment on that? We started off and stayed with the dose that we had been using really 
for many years prior to commencing the time that we started the, the audit from, and that is uh, we used the preparation Botox, the Allergan preparation, and we used the same dilution for all children and all indications. It didn't change. That was two mils of normal saline per 100 units of Botox. We did not go above, except in a small number of children, 16 units per kilogram or 400 units a maximum per child. In fact, there was a, about 10 or so children who we went above that. Now, it's not as though we sat down and said, we're going to monitor the dose, because we did not change our practice in that regard. When we looked at the European consensus statement about what was the recommended doses, we would say that we came in really right in the middle. It wasn't a particularly low dose, but it was certainly not up the, the 24 units per kilogram of Botox that the European consensus statement said was something that, that was recommended. I have to add that the subsequent study in the European Journal of Neurology looking at the more recent botulinum toxin consensus statement, it is quite clearly stated, and this is a coincidence, that in GMSS level 5 children that the 16 units per kilogram is something that is recommended for clinicians to use. That's not the reason we used it. It just happens to be that that's what we were always using because we again felt that we wanted to examine our own practice without making any changes to it. Uh, and I would very much uh, support what you have just said, and we have mentioned this in the paper, and that's that we think that to try and answer your, as you said, the elephant in the room, that it is important for other units to report on their own practices, and especially as far as you know, getting further along the track of answering this question, particularly those units that use a different approach. For example, where a different form of sedation is used, and in particular I would say such as sedation anesthesia, where anesthesia is used, because I think that is still a question in our mind as to how much that influences uh, the appearance of some of these problems. But the dose aspect, I think, is a, is a much broader problem, if you like, or issue to be decided upon, and that would need to have some degree of cooperation between units, if you like. Well, I think those are really important points, and I thank you for making them so clearly. I think your dose ranging is very similar to what many units have gradually worked toward, which has been, unfortunately, I guess we can not really say that it's anything better than trial and error. Now, I think that you and many other units have cautiously increased doses, observed the effects and the side effects, and tried to get the right balance between benefit and risk. But it is still extraordinary that in 2011, with this most potent drug, that there is, in fact, no real work done by the manufacturers to guide all of these different applications, including the use in multiple sites in the limbs of children with cerebral palsy. And that's really, to me, I think quite anomalous. It's really something that still gives me quite significant concerns that the use has been developed by clinicians responding to the needs of parents and the needs of children. And I think largely it has been done ethically, safely, and effectively. But it still is a concern to me and it disturbs me that our basis for these doses remains really rather shaky. I contributed to a consensus statement published in 2000 where we talked about 
total doses of 12 units per kilogram, and the group who worked on that paper deliberately wanted to use and, uh, and recommend doses that would be on the safer side. Your dose range is one that I'm very comfortable with, and it's, it's in the mid-range and substantially below the upper levels that have been quoted in, for example, the European uh, consensus. But I suppose it's worth um, pointing out and reminding anyone who might be listening to the podcast and those who might read the paper that this work has been based on clinician observation. There is a real paucity of animal work, and there is a paucity of good dose-ranging clinical studies. I think there might only be three trials in the literature which has really systematically and scientifically looked at dosing. So this does remain work in progress, and I think it's important to remind everyone that we are in an unusual situation, mass use of a medication which has very limited basis in terms of trials by the manufacturer. Uh, Professor Graham, I uh, support everything that uh, you say. I I may add um, something which perhaps, if it wasn't asked, I would like to explain. We use the term uh, worsening dysphagia in the paper, and it was something that we came to in in an attempt to find out whether children who already had dysphagia, that was almost a quarter of our children, in fact, if they had any effects from systemic spread of botulinum toxin. It wasn't as though we could say they were dysphagic afterwards because that was a pre-existing condition. So we used the word worsening dysphagia or the term worsening dysphagia to try and describe what we were seeing, which was an increase in an inability to handle oral secretions, which we know is an effect of either spread from salivary gland injections or from use of botulinum toxin into the neck when people have the injections for cervical dystonia. We felt that if we were going to ask it at the, uh, the one-month follow-up, we also had to ask it when they were seen for the injections. And I have to say we were a little surprised to hear that there were incidences in the month running up to the injections which we would describe as worsening of or an increase in, in drooling or dribbling and an increase in the child's inability to handle their oral secretions. So that is the basis of the term worsening dysphagia. It did not mean that we injected children at the time of, of an episode of worsening in dysphagia, which would be uh, obviously not only counterintuitive, but, uh, but bad clinical practice. Well, that's really most helpful, because I guess one of my last discussion points might be, the as we looked at retrospectively at our data, we found some temporal associations between some of the events and the injection of toxin, which seemed to be very suggestive that they were related. And so some of the events that you've reported, the four children who were hospitalized, three with lower respiratory tract infections, one with dysphagia, I understand very clearly from your data that the total incidence of these events was lower post-injection than before. That's very nicely Uh, represented and illustrated in the histograms, but was there anything in the temporal relationship, particularly with those more severe potential adverse events, to suggest that this was, in fact, toxin-related rather than background health-related? I think there was. I think that all of the uh, 
adverse events came on within two weeks and I think that it, it continues to be our concern that it was in fact due to this. You know, I'd like to make it clear and I, I think that's what you've been drawing out very nicely and that's that we still aren't positive that this is not due to botulinum toxin. What we're saying is in our clinic population we don't have support for that from an increase in incidence. It just I think is trying to keep the question very much open as to what is the cause of these children's problems, particularly around their respiratory issues. I have to say that one of those children, and again it's because of word restrictions if you like, one of those children in particular was a child who we were injecting their salivary glands, we said that, but this child was already very fragile and had had uh, failed extubation at least on one if not two occasions and the botulinum toxin was used to try and facilitate that to try and improve their chances of remaining extubated. Now this child had had previous chest problems prior to that which we thought was, were relevant but they went on and had other chest problems. Was it due to the botulinum toxin or their, or their, um, their background illness? Uh, I, I really, you know, we, we have no way of answering that. So I think that the time frame that you talk about would still keep the question open as to whether or not this is uh, their problems, respiratory problems in particular caused by botulinum toxin. Well, I think that's very helpful, and I must certainly agree that the ancillary uh, procedural issues as to what other things are, are done for the children to make the injections tolerated are really very important, and there are procedural effects and there are potentially toxin effects, and some of the major differences in the reporting of these events may be related to dosing and dilution and some may be much more closely related to the procedure and we are becoming less happy to use inhalational anesthesia and I think some of the alternatives that Westmead Hospital has pioneered are almost certainly safer but it does point to the value of good prospective data gathering such as your unit has done. I've got one final question and that is that in most interventional studies and in most therapeutics we tend to look at risk and benefit. Now I know this was not the focus of your study but you did report just in a very brief way that 540 plus of almost 600 injections achieved the goals of the injection. I've been a little bit concerned about how many things botulinum toxin can't do in the more severely involved child. For example, in, in well-designed trials, it doesn't seem to impact much on hip displacement, and it doesn't seem to very much impact on gross motor function. So could you just perhaps, as we draw towards a close, tell us a little bit about how you came to this figure and what are the ways of determining efficacy rather than the issue that we've talked about, the potential for adverse events? I think goal achievement is it's the most important way of measuring efficacy of uh, use when using botulinum toxin. We have some years ago put together a pro forma which has primarily upper limb and, and lower limb goals. To give an example of that, it would be a functional goal obviously would be a hemiplegic child who uh, has improvement in their ability to shoot a, a basketball or a netball. A child in a GMSS level 5 category, the goal may be that the family can now um, prevent the palm from becoming 
too difficult to clean and to deal with the, the hygiene aspects of it. We learned from our previous audit, which was done retrospectively and was very difficult by using chart review, that allowed us to, in this particular audit, to actually measure the number of children and the number of goals that were achieved and to use that in a, you either did achieve it or you didn't achieve it. We used that with the appearance of any problems in agreement with the family, in most instances, occasionally the child, uh, to determine whether or not we rebooked the child for their next course of botulinum toxin. I think in answer to your question about cost versus benefit, we would have to come down at this stage on the side of saying we think that the benefit is, is worth the cost for using botulinum toxin in children with cerebral palsy in all GMFCS levels. Well, that's really an excellent way, I think, and a good point where we can finish. I would like to thank you for your work and for engaging in this discussion. I really compliment you and your team, and I think this will be both in the printed version and hopefully on this podcast of considerable interest. And I'll hand back to Dr. Baxter and thank him for the opportunity of participating in this. Yes, thank you very much indeed. Thank both of you for a very, very fascinating, educational, interesting discussion. Just to remind listeners that the article itself is by Stephen O'Flaherty and colleagues, and it's appearing in the February issue this year, 2011.